We are continuing in a series that we began in November, and uh, we did a couple of weeks in November, and then we've just picked it up since New Year's Eve onwards now, and, and just looking at 2 Corinthians between now and probably up to, oh, I think we'll probably get to, to Easter with this. So um, uh, chapter 3 is where we're going. We're looking at the second half of that chapter now. Um, as we looked at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 last week, we had a few thoughts that we should have taken away with us in amongst all that. Um, We first saw glimpses into Paul's missionary efforts and we had an opportunity that he clearly sees in the port city of Troas. But we see that it's been halted or stunted and uh, because something else wasn't reconciled yet, the context of that is that he had sent Titus, he wanted his offsiders back to Corinth with a pretty full-on letter and, and a call for the church to, to get things right. And uh, until he heard news of that, frankly, Paul couldn't get on with the job. And he was stuck where he was, and because he didn't know where one was at, he couldn't move on to the next one. And, and, and I see something really strong in that for us even today. It's, it's really hard, terribly hard, almost impossible to participate in God's ministry of reconciliation when we ourselves have areas that are not reconciled. And, and, and it's hard to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God when one of the key values of the kingdom, which is reconciliation, is not being upheld. And, and as we go into January, if we consider um, both our, recon- our position before God, are we reconciled before God? Or are we, is there things that we are willingly holding on to, sins that we are holding on to that we don't want to let go of, active rebellion, active things? We need to get those things reconciled with God. Because there's no point being an ambassador for something that we are not reconciled to. But also, let's look horizontally, let's look across. Are there relationships that are not reconciled? Friends, family, whatever it is, is there something not reconciled? Because until that is, anything we do missionally will not be effective at all. It'll be halted. So that's, I just see, as we go into January, as we consider a new year, as we think about the turning over a new leaf of life, something's not reconciled, sort it. After this, we see this idea of Paul talking about being a captive to Christ. He considers himself a willing captive in Christ's victory procession. And there was strong imagery in this. And if you go back, you'll remember that he talks about there is an aroma being associated with that sort of procession. In a Roman setting, there will be the smell of burnt offerings and sacrifices. There will be the smell of captives of people. There will be the smell of, of incense burning. There will be things in the air and it would get on the people that were in the the victory procession and and Paul is capturing that idea going Jesus held me captive and I am a willing participant in that and I am caught up in the aroma of that and some are going to find that beautifully sweet and be attracted to it others are not going to find it so much and are going to be repelled by it But nonetheless, I continue to be in that and give off that. I am a willing captive. And if that's the aroma I give, so be it. 
And then he presents some opening statements about the nature of his gospel. And, um, you know, there is an alternative gospel making the rounds uh, in different places and, and it may be happening in Corinth too at this stage. And um, it may well be that some of the opponents of Paul in Corinth are Jews who have come to faith in Christ but have not reconciled appropriately where Moses stops and Christ takes over. So Paul starts to talk about this thing called the New Covenant and the minute he stops talking about Titus and Troas and starts talking about these other things, we're entering a long passage. You could almost picture after Troas, couldn't find Titus there, then he starts talking about the gospel again. It's almost like the start of the brackets. You know, you open a parenthesis, a brackets thing. It's like between there and chapter 7 where he comes back to Titus again, it's like this whole thing is in brackets. And it's called the Great Digression. He's starting to go, all right, I'll get back to Titus in a sec. I'll get back to reconciled relationships. But let's talk about the gospel and what it actually is. And, uh, and what is the new covenant that we live under? And, and so it's like this digression into the new covenant. And, uh, and so now he's starting to lay that out. He talked about, um, he, he sort of reflects on Jeremiah 31 last week. That's kind of what's on his heart when he writes where a new covenant would be done. It wouldn't be written on stone. It would be written on the hearts of man. And uh, it would bring in a new kingdom agenda, a new covenant and, uh, and it would be complete in Christ. So that's sort of the ideas. And now we're going to continue that thought. And we're going to pick up uh, the new covenant idea from verse 7 and read together now. Let's have a look at this. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Again, there's some strong imagery here. And it's stuff that Paul would have had to have personally grappled with and understand and come to grips with some probably 14, 15 years beforehand. Paul is casting his mind back to Exodus chapter 34 in this passage. This is a passage he as a Pharisee knew really, really well. It speaks of the delivery of the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic law and the surrounding events. 
we know that God himself wrote those commandments on tablets of stone. Exodus chapter 20 gives us the contents, the Ten Commandments, right? A heap of other things were proclaimed and set in motion up on the mountain. In the meantime, what's happening down the hill? What's Aaron doing? What's he making? Golden calf. All right, he's making this gold thing down there. And you know, how funny is that? Yeah, everyone just gave me their jewelry, threw it into a fire, and out come this cow. That's what it says. <laughs> Exodus 32 says that God's initial response to that action is to destroy them, to smoke them, and to hit the reset button with Moses. And we know that Moses pleads otherwise, and he sorts out the mess that Aaron made and then he goes and intercedes to the people to, uh, for the people to the Lord, right? And, and uh, we up there again, new tablets are made. And like God's gone, hey Moses, you know those tablets you broke? Yeah, you've got to make them again. Okay. The Lord makes another covenant with Moses up at that time. And, and um, as Moses comes down after this most recent encounter with the glory of the presence of God, we're told that his face is shining even though he himself is not aware of that fact at the time. And we read that it caused others to be afraid to come near him as a result. Just a quick question. Have you been in the presence of God so strongly? Have you been in under his glory so much that people notice it as you come down from that experience? That's a pretty powerful place to be in. These, Moses has had this incredible encounter with God, comes down a hill shining, And they eventually go, Moses, we can't handle this. They eventually get him to stick a veil over his face. Because the shine wasn't dissipating. He'd go back to God's presence take it off. Hey, God, I'm here. Go and say this to the people. Okay. Hey, guys, God said this. Don't look at us. Okay. We're retold, retold all this here in, in Corinth to show that there was an undeniable demonstration of God's glory in the ministry of Moses. There is undoubtedly an anointing on his life. There is undoubtedly a glory that he experienced he clearly had incredible and very powerful encounters with God. He is rightly esteemed as a man who got this close to God. We are supposed to see something really compelling, something holy, something glorious. When we think about the sight of a bright-faced Moses coming down a hill with freshly carved commandments in hand and the standards of the old covenant to be delivered, But what Paul and the Pharisees once had to learn, as did these possible Judaizers in Corinth, is that that demonstration of amazing glory was nothing compared to the glory of the new covenant they were now under. The old covenant had limitations. 
Paul writes that it had brought death and condemnation, and that is certainly true. The sinfulness of man ensured that for an atonement to happen, something had to die often. In the immediate wake of the golden calf, an act that the old covenant condemned, 3,000 men actually died. And yet, this covenant and this experience was considered glorious because God's glory was all over the one who brought it to the people. Another limitation is that Paul calls it transitory. In other words, it temporarily filled a need until something more glorious would come. Paul calls the gospel the surpassing glory of God to the point that the old covenant has completely lost its shine by comparison. The gospel Paul preaches, the gospel of the New Testament, completes and surpasses the message of the old. And the new covenant will last. We're not sitting waiting for another one. We now have the eternal one that stands forever. The old would cease. And the old covenant kept the veil all through the time it was observed and practiced. And this was to the Jews' detriment. Moses' face shone so bright that he ended up covering himself with this veil whenever he hung around God's people. It seems like the only person who could handle God's glory being reflected like that was God himself. We get the impression that Paul saw this as a reflection of the hearts of Israel here. That as glory was on display, the others had a hard time beholding it. That perhaps it was the people telling Moses to cover up, not Moses being considerate to them, if you know what I mean. We see this further when Paul writes that even in this time, the Pentateuch, even in his time, the Pentateuch was read in synagogues with this same veil being worn. The glory of God in the days of Moses was so strong that the people, for various reasons, wanted to dull it down. And this dullness of vision continued through the ages and the end result was dullness of heart as well. Even with the perfect hindsight of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Jews could still not see God's glory and display in the, in, the covenant, in the Old Covenant. Even though Moses made prophetic statements toward Christ's work. Paul also thinks Moses knew that what he was, he was saying to be true as well. Verse 13 of what we just read says, taps into some ancient scholarly discussion. That there was a belief that the glow on Moses' face did beget, it did get dimmer, but the veil didn't show that to the people. But all that changes in the new covenant that is found through Christ and only through Christ. Tell, Paul tells us that in him, in Christ, this veil thingy goes. 
never to return. Until you come to a place of repentance, it stays in place. But once you're his, it's better. The veil is gone. And this changes the way our relationship with God and each other and even our mission plays out. Here's some observations just for now. The veil in context speaks of the ability to see Jesus in the writing of Moses. That's what he's talking about. They didn't have the New Testament collected. They're 400 years off that process yet. When we talk about the scriptures from a New Testament, even from a New Testament position, we're still referring to the, the Old Covenant. To the Jews with veiled hearts, perhaps even those among those alternative gospel teachers invading Corinth, the Old Covenant was a story looking for an ending. But they refused to see Jesus being that end. But an unveiled heart through Christ would see the glory of God all over those pages. They would see the amazing way Christ would change everything. And even a Gentile would read and rejoice, seeing it all so plainly, when those it was written for would be unable to see it. There's an excellent book out on the market right now. It's, it, there's a, a rabbi who was very good friends with a minister. R.T. Kendall is the, is the Christian minister. And, and it's a book called The Christian and the Pharisee. And he's writing, it's, it's a collection of letters between each other explaining both their viewpoints on Christ. And the veil is so evident even in, that, in those letters. That R.T. Kendall is writing about the, you know, the, the, the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, Isaiah 53 and things like that, talking about how these things point to Jesus, pulling out other Old Testament passages, going, look at Jesus in all this. And this rabbi responding, no, I can't see it. I'm not with you on that. That's not the conclusion we Jews draw. Even today, the veil is still there with the Old Testament. And yet, I see here the implication that through the Spirit, that which is written comes alive. The Jews would see it come alive. Obviously, Paul was one of those. Obviously, Matthew, who quotes Isaiah extensively. Obviously, the people writing the Gospels are captured and seeing where Jesus fits into the Old Covenant. And the Gentile breed of which we are continuing to be that. We see even greater clarity because the Spirit illuminates the things we need to see in the Scriptures. As, as we seek the glory of God rather than hide away from it like Israel did, then His Word would get clearer. The contents of our scriptures that we hold in our hands will only get more and more glorious over time. The veil being removed also makes our message unambiguous. 
I simply see this from Paul's phrase this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. The hope of this new covenant makes the mission of making God known in the world much easier. It takes away the complication of the old and brings about a very simple response, simple, complete trust and faith in Jesus. It's fair to say that Paul was good at speaking ideas out. But Paul was also a bit of a no-nonsense sort of guy. The Corinthians loved to sit in audiences and ponder riddles and ponder philosophies and listen to ambiguity and walk away entertained rather than challenged and transformed. That was the Corinthian way. It was also, to a degree, the Corinthian Christian way too because they didn't know better and needed to separate from that. But Paul, in his no-nonsense thing, goes, here's the simplicity of the gospel. It's not as eloquent as you would like, but it is so simple and it will save you. Grasp onto it. Paul goes on to say that there is freedom in this new covenant. And there is. The old covenant had a binding way about it. If it's the covenant that brings death, that's pretty binding to me. In and of itself, the old covenant was not the way to freedom. For anything true, anything veiled will never be truly free. But the spirit was moving and this was to be seen as a liberating, freeing thing in their midst. And when the Judaizers came in and said, hang on, yeah, I know you got your Jesus, but what about Moses too? Let's get back to all that stuff. Let's get all your boys into the doctors. Let's get some surgery done. Let's get to all these rules and rituals. Let's get all these other things. You've got to observe all that stuff because that's God's rules too. Suddenly, the gospel became a binding thing again. Sometimes we live our lives that way. We bind ourselves a bit with our Christian faith at times. It's like, okay, yeah, I've got my faith in Jesus, but I've kind of got to feel, there's something in our human nature that says we've kind of got to do something. I've got to do something else. It feels like that's not enough. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, maybe it's my good outweighs the bad. I've got to make sure that's in order too. Or, or maybe I've got to do a few rituals or I've got to do a few things just to make me feel like I'm doing enough for God. We have different ways of bringing faith plus into our Christian expression. It's almost like we sometimes Judaize our our faith. It's not right unless we add something to it. That's a binding way to do faith. When the Spirit is clearly moving in our midst and the Spirit is transforming us and the Spirit is doing His perfect work in us, There is freedom in that and there is transformation in that. Verse 17 gives a really ringing endorsement of the deity of the Spirit here too. 
the same Lord who was at Mount Sinai giving the Mosaic law was the same Lord that verse 16 tells us removes the veil because of Christ. And in verse 17, that Lord and the Holy Spirit who was in their midst is one and the same person. And finally, we see an expansion of Paul's last thought from last week. In the previous passage, Paul describes Corinth as Christ's letter. This meant they were first and foremost the work of God. They were not the trophies and workmanship of man. Jesus was writing their story. And he's writing ours too. Jesus was writing the standards of the promised new covenant on their hearts. It wasn't Moses holding all the cards and distributing a law of the Lord. Instead, the Spirit was making this available to all. And we would simply know it because the Spirit brings it, into, brings it to life in us. And now he goes a little bit further. Not only is the law written on all believers' hearts, but all are able to experience and behold God's glory themselves. Not by looking at the face of a man who had been there, but by having greater access to the primary source. This verse does not promise that we will see the complete unadulterated glory of God. It's not like we are going to see actually God face to face. Not this side of eternity. We know that Moses couldn't even do that. If you know the story, God passed by Moses, right? And just sort of sneaks past just enough, okay, you can look now, and all he sees is just the back form of whatever that looks like of God, right? And Moses absolutely spins out, freaks out, thinks he's going to die. Not much has changed there because man in general cannot look at God like that even now and live. That experience is reserved for eternity. Paul writes that no man has ever seen God. But we beheld him in Christ. Believers in the gospel are the closest to the glory of God that anyone is going to be this side of eternity. And we know this because Paul says we see the unveiled glory of God contemplatively. Other translations use phrases like we see with unveiled faces but as in a glass or as in a mirror. There is no filter on God's glory in the gospel. No filter on our part, no filter on his. But it's not a direct stare either. It's a reflected effect. One writer describes it like his morning experience where the angle of the rising sun 
hits his neighbor's window before it reflects into his lounge room. It's no doubt sunlight. It's warming. It's effective. You could get burnt off it. But it's reflected. God's warming, effective presence is also reflected. But it's not of the face of Moses, but of the person of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And we have enough of the glory of God to work with. For this glory transforms us and it increases in us. It becomes part of the aroma we give off as the captive of the victory procession. And it shows us more of what we will eventually be. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's already said that we will be raised in glory. That we will all be changed. So what we are already experiencing is something to be increasing. The glory of God is something that increases in us. There's an onwards and upwards element to our spiritual walk in Him. That Jesus makes God's glory available to us more and more. And we become transformed more and more. Not because we follow rules, not because we find a list of rituals, but because the glory of God is doing His work and the Spirit is changing us. And we become ever increasingly closer to Him and closer to His nature and character. And one day in eternity, we will be changed. And by simply living in the Spirit now, we live in anticipation of what is going to be. I'm going to leave it there for today. I'm going to invite the band up again. At this point, what I'm saying here so far is still an incomplete thought. Because it's Paul's incomplete thought. It's still just a little part of the opening bracket. But hopefully you're getting some glimpses of what the new covenant should be in our life. What does Christianity look like? If we live out this new way of life, how should it look in us? Are we aware of the Spirit's work in our life? Are we seeking His face? Are we looking for the glory of God and what it does in us? Is that the daily cry of our hearts? Simply, God, show me your glory. Let me be a reflector of that. You and I are Christ's letter. And one of the evidences of that is that God's glory is on display in, amongst, in our midst. And we're being transformed by that. Are you becoming greater, or better aware of God's glory in your life and his presence in your life? Are you still being transformed? Is there ongoing work in your life? Because that's what the new covenant does. It continually brings new life in us. Those are some challenging questions at this point. Perhaps you want to reflect on those before we go into some worship and we'll give you just a moment to do that. And we'll continue this thought next week as we continue to 
unfold what the new covenant actually is. God bless you. Let's continue to reflect for just a moment before we worship.